Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we gathered, we gather here today uh, to, around your word, namely around your Son, Jesus, to hear from him all that he would have us learn uh, for our edification, for our building up, uh, but most importantly, for our salvation. We ask that you grant this by the work of your Spirit through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Okay. So Micah chapter 5, and I think we finished, chapter 6, excuse me, we finished on verse 7, or verse 8. But I'd actually like to go back and review just a little bit, which is a good thesis, good teaching. Remember when we talked about, see it's still up here because there was nothing on Wednesday (laughs) Uh, this week. We talked about, you know, always reading it in context, okay? So there's there's a challenge of... Uh, what we call proof texting. Have you heard that term before? So proof texting is, say maybe there's a, a doctrine you'd like to talk about. So the doctrine of justification, right? So then you pull out texts that speak of justification, right? And you just, just lift them out and then speak of them. And, and that's the way of what we call systematic theology. So that's taking the counsel of God and trying to organize it in kind of a, a system and then using scripture to defend um, the doctrine that we teach. Uh, and that has its place. Uh, it's a great way to learn. Actually, the catechism in a way is a systematic doctrine or systematic work, right? Because it covers really the whole counsel of God from the commandments through the creed, which of course is everything we know of God and then, um, or, or ought to know of God um, to Creed, Lord's Prayer, how to pray, what, what we can expect from God, and then, um, of course, the sacrament of the altar, sacrament of baptism, other way around, confession, office of the keys is connected to confession, and then, um, what am I forgetting? Yeah, I mean, that pretty much is the summary not only of the Christian life, but also of the Christian witness of the scripture. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, right? Because you don't have any history in there for the most part, right? So we don't have the history of God's people. So look at context. So this, this obviously, this book is Micah, written by Micah. I would suggest that it's actually kind of a, what do you want to say, a summary of Micah's preaching. And uh, so it's been, it was collated by um, someone around the time of Micah uh, from his various sermons that he would, prophetic announcements that he would give. And uh, that's actually a helpful note to make, actually, if, uh, to recognize that the gospel writers do the same sort of thing. So there was this trend in Bible scholarship in the 70s called um, the Jesus Seminar. Do you remember the, anybody heard of the Jesus Seminar? All right. So the purpose of the Jesus Seminar, these were Bible scholars, uh, largely unbelievers, who what they were trying to do is find, they, they wanted to agree upon what were the actual sayings of Jesus in the Bible versus things that the apostles kind of interpolated or the, the evangelists kind of made up. And so what they did, you've never heard of this. Okay. Uh, there's usually a story in National Geographic, you know, every, every year or something about these guys. So all these scholars get together, and I don't remember what it was. I think they had like marbles or something, and they're two different colors. And so then they would put up a saying, um, you know, and then they all had to say yes or no whether it was an authentic saying of Jesus. And then they would count the marbles and whatever 
it had to be something like a greater majority, like a two-thirds majority, for it to be considered an authentic saying of Jesus. This is where the red-letter Bibles come in, <laughs> because that's actually pretty recent. Maybe everybody here's lifetime, but pretty recent is is that we wanted to emphasize these are the words of Jesus versus here's all the other stuff. Like the words of Jesus, his actual utterances are more important than everything that goes around with it. Uh, Which is a problem for us theologically because we actually say that the word of God is Jesus. (laughs) Start to finish, beginning to end, all inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Even things like he wept, right, at the tomb of Lazarus or something like that. All right, so context, Micah preaching, um, but, but a collation of preaching from different times. Oh, yes, Jesus, same story, right? So, wait a minute, did he feed 5,000 or did he feed 4,000? And, and this is an argument that, that scholars make. Well, you know, it was the same event, but they didn't remember the numbers right or something like that. I mean, you should have no problem saying he fed multitudes on two occasions, actually. <laughs> um, same thing with, like, his preaching. Well... Uh, it, Jesus only says that marriage uh, was instituted by God from the beginning between a male and a female. He only says that once. It's in Gospel of Matthew, that kind of thing. So maybe that wasn't a very important emphasis for him. That's the argument you'll hear said, because he doesn't talk about it very much. Well, there's a lot of things he doesn't talk about very much, but they actually are through the whole counsel of the Bible, right? Um, so it would be kind of a strange book if you heard Jesus keep saying over and over the same things. And the, the things he does repeat, of course, are things that you want to key into, right? That on the, you know, that the Son of Man would be betrayed into the hands of sinners and, on, and die and on the third day rise again from the dead, you know? And depending on which evangelist you talk to, he says it at least three times. It's recorded that he said it three times. So Micah's sermons, um, as they're recorded, and maybe even, maybe the author of Micah, uh, you know, whoever put Micah's sermons together, like put them in an organized kind of way, an intentional way. And I would suggest they are. They're intentional. Um, again, the Holy Spirit working through people to do that. Uh, so Micah talking to his immediate people, preaching to them uh, in a prophetic voice. Then also, of course, it's God talking to his people, or narrowly to Israel, which we've talked about. Uh, and then I suggested this. Actually, take that off for a moment. I suggested that it's actually Christ speaking to you as well. Well, that makes sense. It's the word of God. Um, that, that voice, actually, I didn't find very much in the way that people interpret Micah. Even what we're going to read here in chapter 6, the later half of chapter 6, is that um, with the exception of Luther, most of the people who interpret it only see it in, in these kind of, in the specific context, historical context of Micah, but also the kind of the generic context of God and his people, but miss the whole Christ and his church um, aspect of it. So... Wanted to bring that to your attention. And where you see that really play out is I think what we ended on. Um, verse, yes, verse 8. So Micah says, uh, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before or with your God. You got that? That's Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Luke. All right, you're with us. Good. Uh, is it, so we talked about those three points, right? The Lord, well, we didn't talk about the Lord requiring it of you, I don't think. But that means what the Lord requires of you, you would call his law or gospel? 
Yeah, law, requirement, right? Thou shalt, <laughs> if you like, all right? And what does he require? Uh, he requires what is good, and he's actually, what did it say at the beginning of that verse? We're in verse 8, Cassie, if you need to know. Um, he has shown you what is good, right? Is that what your translation says? Or told you. Or he's told you. Well, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? How does God show you? Think of epiphany. How does he show you who he is? By telling you, right? Of events like the wedding of Cana or like his baptism in the, in the Jordan by John or, or today the stilling of the storm, right? And that's how he reveals to you. He shows you. He shows you by telling you. So I think you can probably translate it either way. And he's shown you what is good in contrast to what? Opposite. Children, opposites. Good. Evil. Yeah, we usually use evil as the opposite of good, right? Um, <laughs> you know, famous, uh, famous slogan, or it was a kind of an operating procedure for Google. Do you remember what, you know what they're, what they used to be, they've changed it now. You know what their like, initial like, uh, op- slogan or whatever to kind of guide their practice was? Nobody knows? Yeah. Don't be evil. Don't be evil. So they changed it now because now it says do what is right. Uh, yeah, well, do what is right. Well, and even evil, well, what, I mean, think of Google. Um, some of their practices, I think people would say, yeah, it's pretty close. I mean, their, their entire business model depends upon them having information about you and then being able to sell that information to other people, right? Or to market to you based off of information they've gathered from you. Which means like using G- Gmail. Yes, it's anonymized, but they know a lot about you because they read all your emails. Like, not a person, but a machine, right? Reads the emails and then mines that for information about you so that you can be marketed to. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it's free email. Well, free at the expense of you giving up your privacy. That's how that works. So is that evil? I don't know. I guess we wouldn't call it evil. That's what it used to be. But the idea of good and evil... Um, it's a little bit challenging for us, right? Because define, define good and define evil. It's kind of black and white. We don't even like that, do we? We live in a world where everything's gray. Well, just, just be kind of good. You know? don't, don't be bad, but be okay. It's a world of being okay. <laughs> Anybody have any ideas? How would you define good and evil? Hmm. It's kind of hard to do. Yeah, for us, it's pretty straightforward. Do what God requires, which is what Micah says right here, right? Do what God requires. And then we'd say evil is to... Not do it. Yeah, not do what God requires, right? So, I mean, right at the beginning, what does Satan tempt Adam and Eve with? What's the temptation? Yes, eat of the fruit. But why? Did God really say that? Well, did God really say that? That's the nature of the temptation. But what's the goal or the purpose of it? So that they would... Mm, yeah, that's true. What, what, is, what does Satan say will be the result? You'll be like God knowing good and evil. And what did God want them to know? Good. Yeah. Did he want them to know about evil? <laughs> what evil is. And, and, and Satan's exactly right, which is the funny thing, right? I mean, this is how temptation works. Is it sounds really good at first, and then you 
but you don't really think it through to its conclusion, which is, yes, now that you will have gone against God's command, you will know what evil is, right? That is what evil is, is, is to live contrary, um, to be contrary to God, actually to, um, to destroy what God has put together, right? Because he is the creator and he's made, made you in order to love you. Uh, and then you come along and say, I don't want to be a part of that relationship. Um, and that would be evil, right? What would be good is to remain uh, with God. So, all right. Does that all make sense? So what is it to know good? And that's what Micah does here too. Oh no, it skipped to Matthew. I don't want to go to Mike. I'm going to go back to Micah. All right. Uh, He's told you. He's revealed to you. And what does the Lord require of you? But to one, do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. So we talk about justice. And what is just? What is right? If you want to use Google. In the case of Google, it's whatever is right in their own eyes. Whatever's not against the law, um, whatever they can get away with without making either their users upset, their investors upset, or the federal government upset. <laughs> or the international governments, because it's an international company. Right. And that's what is right. And then everything, as long as they can get away with it, or as long as it doesn't cause any problems, then it's fine. Uh, that's not exactly what God has in mind, is it? Just do what you, what you, what you want. But to do justly, and again, who said that it was according, yeah, Ron, you said it's according to what God has actually said. So what is justice? Well, justice is not people getting what they deserve, actually, according to God. (laughs) That's how the world thinks of justice, isn't it? That you you get your just desserts, as they say. I think that's right. Um, Luther says it means to harm no one, to render to each person what is his own, to bother no one to help others, to promote their welfare, to prevent damage and violence, uh, so that the wealthy may not surround and oppress the needy, and so that the guilty may be punished and the innocent protected. So I think the last part makes sense, right? That the guilty may be punished and the innocent protected. That's what we think of as justice. Um, but you've heard this expression that's kind of popular right now called social justice, and there's social justice warriors. Um, interestingly enough, Luther has an idea for a concept here drawn out of God's word, from Jeremiah especially. Um, but think of the whole book of Leviticus when it outlines how the people of God are to behave as a society. Um, he has in mind some social aspects to justice, right? That the, that the poor are not oppressed, that they're provided for. Uh, everyone's welfare is cared for. Not just preventing damage and violence. That people are able to live um, without being bothered by others, <laughs> harassed, as you might say, that no one's harmed, you know, uh, and each person is rendered or given to them uh, what is theirs or what is, their, what is due to them, like a worker receives his wages, for example. All right? So, I mean, that is social justice, right? And so uh, I gave Cassie the book. Did you find it in your mailbox? No. It's in your mailbox. Okay. I'm telling you now. Um, <laughs> The problem is that there's different ways, um, as far as a, a psychologist, not psych, well, psychologist, but also sociologist, different ways to go about justice. And I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but it's in the book. Um, uh, some, for some people, justice is outcomes, so that everyone receives the same outcome. That's not exactly just, right? Because some people are going to put the work in, and some people aren't, right? Well, is justice that they both receive like a trophy that they won? 
Thank you, school. Right? Everybody's a winner. Um, that's not actually justice, is it? Because in a way, you're saying to the person who actually put in the work or who actually won, um, your actual effort doesn't really count. Right? So, so it's more distributive justice, or, ju- or what we say, um, justice that's based upon opportunity, equal opportunity, which is different than equal outcome. And, and what's shifted here, according to the book, and I think he's right, the authors are right, um, is that what's now called social justice is actually everyone should have equal outcome. So everybody should be able to be married because that should be a universal thing that everybody should have. And it's like, no, not actually, um, if you're not going to put the work in. It used to be society was pretty clear about this. Like, like infidelity, um, you know, that's, that's a fault, right? And then that, that's cause for um, divorce. But otherwise, you, didn't, like, you couldn't just get divorced because you just didn't feel like being married anymore. That would be unjust, right? According to just even natural law, never mind God's law. So just as an example. So to do justice is really, it is more than just uh, uh, evildoers being punished <laughs> and uh, righteous people being commended or something like that. But it is that the poor are cared for, um, that, um, that the sick are, are attended to. So we would lump into justice uh, actually what comes next, right? Which is to love mercy. We put those two things together because that's what God does. Um, He's righteous, that is, he, set aside, he sets aside sins and he shows mercy, he forgives, right? Um, or, yes, we don't deserve our life, but he still upholds and preserves our life, even though we don't deserve that, that we deserve only death due to our trespass. So to love mercy, what's mercy? I think we talked about this last week. Yeah, you said you like to refer to it as steadfast loving. Yeah, this is the God, God's mercy word. It's a specific word called hesed. Do you remember that from last week, the Hebrew word, hesed? Uh, think of Jesus, uh, Matthew 9. Uh, go and learn what this, what this means. I desire, what? Mercy and not sacrifice. And there, it's, you know, what does he desire of you? Not that you, <laughs> what would be sacrifice versus mercy? Hmm. That word love actually is helpful. Sacrifice would be more Think of uh, in terms of like duty or obligation. I think we talked about that too last week. Right? That you check off all the box. You've been a good little boy or girl. Uh, God is Santa Claus, right? Mm-hmm. And hopefully when you get to Christmas um, this year, it will be um, a gift and not a lump of coal. You know. Well, that's sacrifice. That's the, looking at God as some, our God as someone who's pleased by sacrifice. You know, I've been to church. I've paid my offerings. I've even taken care of the poor. I, you know, I volunteer at, um, at the food bank, whatever it is, right? I teach in the school. Um, do those things please God? Of course they do, right? Um, but do they save you? Do they please him in the way of... Actually, we really don't do those things to please God. We do those because that's how he pleases us, if that makes sense. Maybe say it a different way. I mean, why go to church? I, did, I think we talked about this with the confirmands. I ask the question, and they say, because we have to. Well, what's that language? That's the language of sacrifice, right? I have to give up my hour to be at church because my parents require it, or God requires it, or whoever. Grandma and grandpa are going to get mad at me if I'm not at church, right? Or I'm going to hear about it. And better to do it than to listen to you know, grandpa rant. Um, I don't know. Do you rant, Ron? 
I'm looking at you. <laughs> do you rant at your grandkids when they're not in church? I don't know. I don't know if you do. Joan might. She's not here to defend herself, so that's not fair. Yeah, give them reminders. That's right, be gentle. That's true. Um, rather, I, I suggested the confirmants, rather than saying you, you go to church because you have to, it's because um, maybe you want to. Well, that's not even necessarily helpful either. But you go um, because that's where, where Jesus is and where, he, where he's there as in the way of gift, right? To bless you, to sustain you, to pres- preserve you, to forgive you, most importantly, right? Which is not sacrifice, but that's actually mercy, God's mercy, the hesed, the tender loving kindness of, of Jesus Christ. That's why we go to church. Um, so that's what's going on here, to love that. Well, to love mercy, if it's God's mercy, then who is it first to love, most importantly? God. In, namely, in Jesus Christ. That's right. Um, where the mercy of God is most well known is in that he mercifully, lovingly gives up his son um, to die for the sins of the whole world and for you, right? Um, and then remember what Jesus says. Um, you know, summarize the command. What is the command? What's the greatest commandment? Love, no. Yeah, love. Love the Lord your God with your whole person, right? Um, nothing's left out. Heart, mind, soul, strength. I don't know. Every little way you can dissect yourself up into pieces. <laughs> love God the whole, that whole way. And, not also, but and. It's the same commandment. Another commandment is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 9, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Is actually um, the Christian life, the Christian faith, and actually it's, it's the true faithfulness of like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the faithfulness we see in the Old Testament is not to live for oneself, but to love God is to love your neighbor. Actually, how you love God is by loving your neighbor. Well, not by sacrifice, but by um, love for one another. Well, love is sacrifice, but it's, it's lived out um, for someone else. Uh, which plays out then when Jesus says, uh, when did we see you? Right in the parable. Right, it's a parable. It's a picture of the last time. You know, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry and thirsty and prison and naked and you know, famous. We didn't, I don't remember sacrificing for you. And he says, when you did it unto the least of these, my brother, you did it unto me. Right? So he makes that connection as well. Yeah, Ron. Well, I was just reminded of the passage in, uh, it's in Samuel Kings where Saul wanted to sacrifice mm. because the problem wasn't there. Yeah. And, and the verse is written, obedience is more worthy than sacrifice. There's more yeah. important than sacrifice. Yeah. And what kind of obedience? And I think that's the important thing. Because like we've been talking about, Every, you test me on this, if you would, because I'm making an assertion. So when I make assertions, you know, <laughs> try to prove me wrong, please. Um, that every world, every religion of this world, apart from um, Christianity, is about sacrifice. Doing the right thing, saying the right thing, pleasing God somehow through actions, obedience, um, through prayers, pious acts, um, even, even what we call, you know, like... What would be a secular religion today? Well, actually, this kind of social justice thing, people treat with kind of religious fervor, right? This is what you have to do now um, to be a part of this group, whoever the group is. I don't know. 
And, um, but it's all about sacrifice. It's all about me sacrificing myself to please, in this case, the institution, if you're talking social justice, in the case of every other Christian faith, it's whoever God or gods um, you worship. And, and so the, the, the specific distinction of Christianity, obviously, is, is Jesus Christ, right? Who suffers and dies and rises on the third day, like no one ever has ever done, uh, especially no one who has ever predicted that they were going to do that, right? And so that's a unique component of Christianity that nobody else has. And in Jesus, you see that everything has been oriented from the very beginning in God sending his son to die for you, that you would not die, but that you would live and that you would have life with him eternally. And that's, that's actually the other direction, isn't it? It's not about your sacrifice to God, but it's actually what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Um, so every, you can read about with the Baals and the Astra, or think about the prophets of Baal with, with Elijah and on Mount Carmel. And, and what, what are the prophets of Baal doing? They're, they're flagellating, so they're cutting themselves. They're making a big ruckus. What are they trying to do? Elijah's taunts are so good there. I love that story. One of my favorite. I wrote a long paper about it in seminary, so um, it's kind of stuck in my head. But uh, where I kind of dealt with all the aspects. But I mean, Elijah just taunts them saying, you know, maybe your God's sleeping, Baal. Uh, or he's out relieving himself, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, I mean, why are you making all this noise, all this ruckus? Why are you cutting yourself? You're just trying to get your God's attention, right? And we don't need that. God is already attentive to us. So here, first, to love mercy is first to love Christ, right? And then having been justified by him, um, simply by faith, by having received his mercy, then, as we, we know from the New Testament, especially where it's, you know, then fruits of faith flourish, right? Where you, where you sit humbly, <laughs> where you sit in the mercy of God, uh, don't be surprised then if, if God and Christ has some effect upon you. Now, we don't like to go about it this way, do we? We like to flip it around. Um, I read a, a, for one of the podcasts I do, I'm looking at Mike as he listens to it. Um, the last one, it's going to come out this week, I think. Uh, we actually we actually studied a Billy Graham sermon. And Billy Graham, people love Billy Graham. But how does Billy Graham work in this in that sermon anyway? Is it begins with what Christ has done, and then it goes to now here's what you're supposed to do. Whereas the way Micah works and the way that God works in New Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, throughout is here's what you're supposed to do, and then you say, oh no. I haven't done that. And he says, here's what I've done for you. And he, and then in the case of like the Pauline epistles, then he'll say, oh yeah, and if you were, if you were worried about it, all those things that you don't do, God in Christ is going to do through you, right? You know, you'll, you'll care for one another. You'll, you'll take care of your church. But you don't have to worry about it. And that makes us uncomfortable because who always wants to, who always wants to be an actor in their own Salvation story. <laughs> Put it that way. We do. We want, to be the, we want to be the actor. We want to be the one doing the doing. And then over and over we hear in the scripture that it's God in Christ who does it for us. And then what do we do? It was like uh, President Harrison said last week. He's used that expression so many times from Luther about the, the empty sack. And then the sack is full. I'm, not a, I'm actually not a huge fan of the expression. But, but the idea is right. We come with nothing to give, nothing to sacrifice, actually. Oh, 
But then that makes me wonder about the hymn. I give thee, we give thee but thine own, whatever the gifts may be. All that I have is thine alone, a loving trust from thee. Oh, actually, oh, everything we give to him, he's in the hymn, we actually say it is a gift from him too. <laughs> See how that goes? It's just a little, it's a little tricky, the hymn writer got us. <laughs> you have to go work all the way to the end of the stanza. Why do I know that by heart? Must have sung it a lot of times. Uh, all right. So, yes, we come to receive, and here we receive mercy, and then we have mercy. Um, even the prophets say that. Uh, a contemporary of Micah, Hosea, you know Hosea? Heard this guy? I'm going to go look it up because I got a reference here. Um, o Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, and we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Oh, by the way, that's the only, that's the only uh, sacrifice that God actually asks for, which is what? Praise and thanksgiving, right? That is to acknowledge the gift, <laughs> right? Which um, we all are taught to do from a very young age, although we're not very good at it, is saying thank you, right? <laughs> when a gift is received. Uh-huh. And that's all that God requires of us is simply to say thank you, all right? to receive it, in other words. All right. Let's see. So mercy we talked about. And then what's the next one? Oh, to love mercy, which is helpful too. Love is a, is a law word, by the way. I know we like to think love as a gospel word, as a gift, but love is law. It's duty. It's obligation, which is not a bad thing. That means marriage, for example. It's not something you just receive. It's something that you work at, that you, that you do. <laughs> um, anyway, or any kind of love, right? Even love for neighbor. It's active. It's not passive. It's not, it doesn't just, just I mean, it's intentional. Uh, to walk humbly with your God. And did we talk about, we talked about walking with God, right? That's the halakha in Hebrew. It's the, it's the path. It's, you know, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's to follow after God. It's to be his disciple. I think we talked about that, right? Um, but uh, did we talk about humbly? I'm not sure we hit that one. Yeah. So um, the problem with walking with God, as we've talked about many times here, is God does not require sacrifice, but requires what? Mercy, justice. And uh, the problem with even walking after God, as, as I mentioned before, is that you can do it not humbly, but opposite. Opposite of humility is? Proud, pride, that's right, yeah. So can you walk proudly? This is more maybe like uh, the church militant section in the hymnal. Onward, Christian soldiers, you know, that's kind of boasting and proudful. Or a mighty fortress. And there we're boasting in God, not in ourselves. Um, but there's a way that Christians can fall into this. And what Jesus calls that, actually Old Testament too, is hypocrisy. Uh, think about like Ash Wednesday, we're going to hear about, about specifically sacrifices in prayer, right? And, you know, the gospel, what is it, Matthew? Is it Matthew 6? Sermon on the Mount? I think it's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Um, you know, when you pray, you know, go into your, you know, don't do it like the hypocrites do who put on a big show. They do it at the street corners. They wear sackcloth and ashes. They're, they're impressive in their prayers. And yet, when you pray, go into your... Go into your home, go into the closet, close the door, pray secretly, 
because your father is in secret will hear you. Yeah. So the difference, difference between boastfulness and humility there in, in terms of prayer is? Yeah, making other people know about it. Yeah. So it's a delicate line, isn't it? Because we want to be, we want to boast in the works of God as he accomplishes them in and through us and among us, right? So like, you know, I mean, if we had our biggest confirmation class ever, we probably want to say something like, thanks be to God for this, right? The problem is, is that we could easily just go a little bit further and say, look at how great a job we did. And what have you now done? You've actually undermined the one who did the work. <laughs> You've taken credit for what wasn't yours. You were his instrument, if you want to say anything, you know, parents and pastor and teachers and whoever was contributed to that result. Um, but it was God, the Holy Spirit, working through his word that did it, not you. Right? Yeah. Just thinking of the example of Jesus gave of the Pharisee and the publican. Mm-hmm. You can see the difference between the two. Yeah. You know Thank God I'm not like, there's also that one. Thank God I'm not like this tax collector. You know, I give tithes and I pray and everything. And what does Jesus say? You know, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, forgiven. Not because of the, the boldness or the, you know, all the sacrifices that he had made or his, his faithful prayers or whatever. Because actually none of those things were faithful. So I wanted to emphasize that word for you. And I don't know if I did that last week. You know, these works that look holy, um, but that are as, um, as St. Augustine calls them, he calls them philatia, philatia, self-love. <laughs> not for love of God, not lo- and especially not for love of neighbor, but for love of self, right? And that's, the, that's what pride is, right? Is to boast in oneself. So to build oneself up. Bad idea. This too, walk humbly in God. So, um, think of, you know, Mary. He has regarded the one of lowly estate, right? He has lifted up the lowly. Let God be the one who exalts you, not you exalt yourself. We put it that way. Simply walk in humility. And, and one of the great ways to do that is what we just talked about. When there is something that's worth boasting about, you know, something impressive or important or, you know, that's contributed to the welfare of your neighbor or to this congregation or church or whatever, or the school, is to simply say, thanks be to God. Not I, but you, Lord. To be more like John the Baptist, I must decrease that he increase. That kind of thing. Follow? So to walk humbly, that's, that's what... The, that, that, uh, it's not just any kind of walking in, in God's way. And so I would say this would be, like in our catechesis, is to not forget about the table of duties. Have you ever noticed this? Um, or do you know the table of duties? That's the first question. It's kind of like part two of the catechism. It was appended to the catechism shortly after Luther's death. Um, but, but argued that it's, it was actually written by Luther and it was intended to be there. It starts with the Ten Commandments, thou shalt. But notice when Luther says thou shalt not, what does he also always say in every commandment? Thou shalt, right? In other words. And actually, the first commandment doesn't even have, I mean, it's you shall have no other gods before me. And then what's his answer? It's all, all positive. You should fear, love, and God, trust in God above all things, Right? Or think of the fourth commandment, you know, is to uphold and to, um, to honor your father and your mother is also then to, what? Honor other authorities. Everyone who has authority under your parents, uh, all civil authorities, and church authorities too. 
So then we get back to it with the table of duties. Sorry if you're not following here at the end. But what's right at the center? The thing that we, all, we don't often get to in our catechesis. We spend a lot of time on the Ten Commandments, maybe on the prayer. Hopefully we get to the creed. And then we miss the sacrament of the altar, sacrament of baptism. And uh, we might not even get to the third article of the creed. Um, and we certainly don't ever cover the table of duties, which are how the Ten Commandments then are lived out in the life of the Christian. Why did I bring all that up? Hmm. Yeah, walking humbly. That's right. And the Catechism teaches us that, but not in the way of the law, but in the way of um, that, that our walk with God is it's entirely a, a, a gift received um, by faith. And uh, actually then, too, um, he gives us some freedom. I shouldn't say some. He gives us entire freedom. And that comes in the next part. So now we can move on. So that was a lot of review, but I had some time to think about that more. Uh, why don't we read 9 through 16? Doesn't matter. Anybody can read. Ethan's reading. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sin. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. Mm. So, yeah, these are a little bit uh, stronger words. Yes? (laughs) And uh, let's see. So the Lord's voice cries to the city. That's one way you could say it. Um, What's another way you could say that? Well, whose voice is crying to the city, actually? That's maybe Micah needed to remind us. This is the voice of the Lord crying to the city, Um, which maybe pastors have to remind us periodically, too, to say, okay, just so we're clear here, this isn't my personal opinion. (laughs) But I, this is what God's word says, right? This is, this is what the Lord has given me to say. Uh, especially in terms of like law or judgment, you know, or calling up um, particular sin or when it's been revealed, right? And say, you know, I, I, don't have no, I have no grievance against you personally. Um, it's the Lord who has a grievance against you and I'm just here to speak it. And so Mike is doing that, right? This is the voice of the Lord crying to the city, um, Israel, right? Wisdom shall see your name. Is that what yours says? Wisdom. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Yeah, wisdom to fear your name, to see your name, to hear. So the Hebrew is kind of ambiguous there. Sound wisdom. Uh, so, as we've talked about, you cannot know the distinction between good and evil apart from apart from actually God revealing it to you, right? 
or we would say wisdom from God. Uh, otherwise, what we define as good and evil is what we define. <laughs> and it's kind of a sliding scale and it shifts. So, you know, maybe a couple months ago, most people would say it's, it's evil to abort a child in the third trimester of pregnancy. And then over a span of just a couple months and through an election and whatnot, uh, now at least those in authority in Illinois and New York and where else? I missed the other, there was another state this week too. Um, said, oh no, third trimester's okay. You know, was, I think it was Virginia. Yeah, because the governor supporting yeah. it. That's right. Um, so the governor is chastised for, for having a, a racially tinged yearbook picture, but not for suggesting that a child could be killed outside the womb, actually. So, yeah, which is called infanticide, by the way. Um, all sorts of arguments. Um, and it's even in the Missouri Senate, by the way, if you want, wanted to be particularly scandalized. Um, there's an article in uh, a journal printed by Missouri Senate guys uh, called Daystar that uh, it was a, a now-retired professor from Concordia University, Portland, um, who suggested uh, that life is about capacity and, and dignity is a matter of coming to dignity. So, you know, um, by his line of argument, um, you know, a child that can't develop to a normal human being, whatever that defined thing is, lacks some dignity. And thus, um, you know, abortion should be able to be on the table. So he, he would advocate for like aborting I don't know, Down syndrome children, for example. This is a, was teaching, I think, biology at Missouri Senate University. So uh, things have shifted maybe not as quickly as we'd like to think. They've been around for a while, and it just takes time. But, but that's a flexible scale, good versus evil. It's whatever is right in our own sight. Or we can um, we use our own kind of proof texting in the world. It's called uh, science. <laughs> you know? So... What was it yesterday? Oh, uh, it's something about homosexuality, right? So that those should be considered natural relations, specifically between two men, because look at all the animals that do it. Like, I, I, I understand your logic, I suppose, um, but you're saying that we're just another animal. <laughs> That's the first problem, right? That humans are just animals. Um, and the animals don't have consciousness like we do. Right? And there's all sorts of problems with this. So using science kind of as a, a way to just shift the scales of justice or, or what is good and evil. So be, be aware of that too. The only way you can know mercy or to know love um, or to know justice is to hear the, the voice of wisdom and that's to fear the name of God, right? In other words, Jesus, to listen to him. All right, so then the prophet speaks. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. So, this is the lawgiver, right? Is that what you use the rod for? Spare the rod, spare the child? Yeah, exactly. Now, rod, this is law. Uh, Think Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they guide me, right? The rod is the... I would say it's law and gospel, is what the psalmist has in mind there. Because the staff isn't the one that smacks you on the backside to get you moving. But it is the... It's when the shepherd walks behind you and just nudges you, right? Yeah. Uh, Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? Answer. Who appointed the rod? 
Go ahead and say it, children. Sunday school answer. Well, yes, God has appointed it. That's right. Are there, in, are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Is that what yours says? Scant measure that is a curse. A scant measure that is a curse. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? Oh, that's a better translation. It's a little bit less obtuse. And the scant measure that is a curse. Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? So what is, what is God saying here through the prophet? Should I just act as if any of that is not justice, that it's unjust? Should I just, should, should God change, shift the standard, if you like, right? Should he, you know, they're wicked scales, they're deceitful weights. We're just saying, no, nah, that's okay. It's not a problem, right? Let's just look the other way. Um, can I forget? And what's the answer? Can he forget? Does God forget? The <laughs> only thing he describes as forgetting is your iniquity. <laughs> as he and his son cast it into the depths of the sea or to the ends of the earth, away to the ends of the earth, and it's forgotten. Right? Uh, but these who are doing unjustly, can he forget? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Alright, so this is what we would call. Who are the rich men, by the way? Maybe that's worth remembering. Who might he be talking about here? Okay, we have to go back. We have to talk about what context of Micah. Who is he preaching to? Who is he preached against, like say in chapter 5? Remember chapter 5, we had mountains and, and hills being preached against. We talk about maybe who he had in mind there. Yeah, Jerusalem, the kings, the important people, right? Um, and this is a, reminds me of a Bob Dylan song lyric, which I had on a t-shirt, which is the only reason I can remember it, because it really makes no sense. But he said, as Bob Dylan quotes, never usually makes sense. It's gibberish. Um, don't follow leaders, just watch the parking meters. Don't follow. I don't know what it means. Um, because it's kind of like if you're following the park, if you're watching the parking meters, you those are appointed by the leaders, so it doesn't. You know, he's talking about kids. You don't know what parking meters are. It used to be you park, you have to put coins in. Okay, anyway, uh, to park in the spot in the city. You know about these? Okay, now you can just swipe your credit card. It's crazy. What is it saying? Uh, don't follow leaders. The, that, but that's our natural inclination is to say, well, you know, for example, in a church. Well, pastor said, so that's right. Or pastor so-and-so said. And I'm like, okay, yes, they are in a position of authority, right? An authority that's been given them to God. But their authority only extends as far as they speak according to the word of God. And then past that point, their authority ends. That's it. Okay? So you only have authority insofar as God has given it to you. So where they claim to speak... Uh, where God has not spoken. Um, I'm cautious about that. I'll say this is just my own pious opinion. You know, just an idea, something like that. Um, But here, that's what the rulers are doing. They're full of violence. They speak lies. Their tongue has deceit in their mouth. And what are the people doing? They're listening to them. Yeah. Um, And these these men are, they're, 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 um, yeah, hypocrites. But I, what's the word I'm thinking of? 
They're scam artists. They're, they're, they're liars, as he says. No, what, who are the people who use the scales? Have, have like, yeah, this is, because when you would weigh out coins, right, you would have weight. They had a bag with weights in it. And then they could, and those were, those had been precisely measured, supposedly, so that you could actually say how many coins you'd given, right? Here's, here's a, you know, a comparable weight. But what is Micah saying? And eh, their weights are, they're like, uh, what do we call loaded dice? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Weighted dice? Yeah. You know, they're, they're cheaters. That's it. <laughs> Big word. Cheater. Um, and they're cheating. And their tongue uh, is deceitful in their mouth. Right. Therefore, as a result, with the result that I will, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. So, so, <laughs> yes, the leaders, the rich men, are full of violence, they sp- and everybody around you speaks lies, and there's deceit in their mouth. But who, who bears the brunt of the punishment? Yeah, you do. Why? Not because of their sin, but because of your sin. Your sin is specifically following them, right? rather than walking humbly with your God, listening to them. So there is consequence for that. Um, and again, I think we've talked about this. Um, <laughs> where, where would be a great example? Well, God, you know, um, humbling the proud and exalting the lowly, right? We talked about it with Mary. Um, one of the great expressions of this, I, realized, I hadn't really thought about it too much until this week, is uh, where does Christ come from? He's called the, the shoot from the... Stump of Jesse, which so the the family tree of Jesse it looks like what now? Like dead, right? It's cut down. There's nothing left, and yet out from that comes. So you see how God has has made desolate the house, even the house of Jesse. Then, but but yet there's life given to what's for, to that remnant that's left kind of a beautiful picture of that right so yes he's making desolate but not for the purpose of that they'd be dead forever right but it's so that they don't trust in themselves Hmm. you shall and so then here's what hypocrisy looks like you shall eat but not be satisfied um you shall there shall be a hunger within you and you shall put it away but not uh, preserve and what you preserve i will give to the sword Sow and not reap. Tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. Tread grapes and not drink wine. So what, what, is, what is the prophet describing here? This is what, what the worship of the hypocrite looks like. This is what the life of the hypocrite looks like. Unfulfilling. Yeah, unfulfilling, right? Put in a lot of effort, and you got nothing to show for it in the end. Right? Um, or how do, what's another way we describe that? Spinning your wheels. I'm just spinning my wheels here. Which begs the question, then. If you're putting in all the effort and you have nothing to show for it, there's either two things that are going on. God hasn't granted the growth that you're looking for. <laughs> or, you're not doing what God has given you to do. Right? Why are you not seeing the fruit? Because you're not grafted onto the tree. Right? You're trying to live apart from the tree. So it could be either, right? And that, that's where, they said, this balance between good and evil or knowing where that is. Um, same thing here with the problem with looking at fruits. 
is, uh, I mean, pastors are not fruit inspectors, as one, somebody called it. I can't remember who said that. We don't go around looking for fruit that faith is living because it's deceiving. Because you look at some people and it seems to be they're the most pious person ever and then they're on their deathbed and they say, I don't believe any of this. Never did. I wish I had somebody, I've said they've been in church for 40 years and, um, but they didn't believe any of it. Like, what? Why did you even bother? That's what I'm thinking. That's like a lot of wasted effort spinning your wheels. I did it for my husband. Okay. That's something. I ended up leaving the church. And uh, so the other, but the other flip side is true too. You can look at some people and they don't seem to live all that piously. Um, maybe they have, a, they have strength, very public sins that they struggle with. You know, I don't know, they're drunk or something, right? And everybody's like, there's no way that guy's a Christian because he's, I mean, he, he doesn't have his act together. And I'm like, you missed the whole point. He comes, he, 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 maybe not regularly even, but he comes. He hears God's word of forgiveness. He trusts in that. And that's what saves him. And uh, you don't know how people are struggling with their sins either. You know, to presume that because they have outward obvious sin, um, that they're not struggling against it is to presume to know what's in their heart, which you can't. So that's the problem with fruit inspection is that I can't presume to know what's in your heart. So actually pastors and I think parents are the same way. I mean, we're terrified of our children turning into heathens. Sorry, kids. I mean, of course, parents are terrified of that. But what do you do? What can we do? All we can do is what God has given us to do. And then, you know, if you guys stay in the church, whose work is it going to be? Pastor, dad, whatever you want to call me today? Well, yes, of course, God working through me, but it's actually God's work, right? And if you say, you know what, I'm going to walk away from all this because I think it's all nonsense. Um, That's actually sinning against the Holy Spirit, not just against your parent. Dishonoring your father. Um, Oh, fathers, we heard about that this week, right? The faith of, his, of their fathers. Remember that? With, with uh, Josiah. Yeah, the king remembered the faith of his fathers. Right? So, ah, staying in the Christian faith. Yes, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's actually a way of honoring your parents. <laughs> it's part of honoring your parents. Why do you think they taught you the faith? Um, it's just a thing that we do, I guess. No. No. It's just what we do on Sunday morning. So notice how everything is just, it's like you're just going to put all this effort in and you're not going to have anything to show for it in the end. Right? You're going to put away and, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You're even going to lose what you even tried to hold on to. Or, as I've never said at a funeral, but I've been tempted to many a times, there's no U-Haul attached to the hearse. <laughs> you know? Can you imagine seeing that? But that? Of course, again, every other world religion, what do they do? They get buried with stuff. <laughs> Oh, which I, I try not to get aggravated with people when they put like everything that they I, I, they'll put the ring like at the showing you know the wedding ring but then somebody will come take it off before they close the casket <laughs> because it's like what good is it going to do them in the casket right? just go pawn it or something or give it to a child let them use it I'm wearing did you know this did I ever tell you this story this, this wedding ring which is not coming off my hands are swelling because it's so hot in here sorry um it actually says 92 on it, but I was married in 98 because it was my great-grandmother's wedding ring from 1892. Great-great. Sorry, great-great. I've never told you that? Oh, I can't take it off. It's a, the initials in there are LW. Um, 
which was, Werfelman was her last name. Uh, what's her first name? Lydia, maybe? I think it was Lydia. So, anyway. Um, so I did inherit a wedding ring. So that didn't get buried with my great-great-grandmother, excuse me. Because uh, my grandma, great-grandmother was born in 1899. So that, the logic of that works better. Okay, good. Seven years after they were married. And you, you have kept the statutes of Omri. Was Omri a great guy? He was a king, by the way. Father of Ahab. Father of Ahab, yeah. So, eh. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all those who were before him. First Kings 16, 25, uh, 26. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God Israel to anger with their idols. And he was also mentioned back in chapter 1, wasn't he? 1 verse 13. Oh, yes. Inhabitant of Lachish, which is where he's from. All right. All right. Uh, and what about Ahab? Ahab, known, he's he known as being a uh, great king. Well, later on in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Oh. So even worse then? Omri. And it came to pass. Oh, yes, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Now, okay, if your father's name has Baal in the name, what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like uh, uh, Anne's family. Um, they're, they're all either, they all have middle name Wilhelm or Wilhelmina. That, that was all their names, Wilhelm and Wilhelmina. Why? Because their dad was a bodyguard for the Kaiser, whose name was? Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Yeah. So you name all your kids after. That explains why Luke's middle name is William. Yeah, that's where William. Well, no, William, my, my, my mother's side. Grandpa Schwab's name is William. Yes, that's, his came from that. Yes. His, but no. Oh. No, that was my grandfather's name. All right, anyway, our middle name. All right. Jezebel, yeah, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So it's like the Garden of Eden all over again, and it just got really terrible. So, uh, so if the prophet said that to you, hey, you're like Omri, or you're like Ahab. This is not soft-pedaling the situation, is it? This, this is like saying, um, What? I don't know, what would be a big insult? You kids, you insult yourself all you insult yourself, you insult each other often. What are names? Oh, it'd be like in uh, Monty Python, Holy Grail. You know, your mother smelt of elderberries. Which I guess smell bad. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, and you shall bear the scorn of my people. So it's just not exactly the most positive gospel note to end on today, but that's probably where we should end. We can pick it up with verse 16 um, next week. Talk about this desolation and scorn. All right, let's close with prayer. Lord God, you have called us to, uh, to love justice, to show mercy, and to walk humbly before you. Uh, We ask that you would always show us our sin by your holy law, that we would see where we have transgressed, where we have gone off the path, where we have strayed, and then by your holy gospel be called back 
to trust in your son Jesus, to be forgiven by him, and then by his spirit um, to be renewed and restored to walk humbly before you. May you grant it in the name of Jesus. Amen.